0: What I'm going to do today is talk on stuff that I did for my doctoral research and it's ideas that I've been kind of teasing out from that and um, the, the sources I'm using are basically newspaper coverage of local elections and candidacies and voting and so forth using a range of newspapers, using the Irish Times, the Independent and the Freemans Journal so you're getting even different voting figures from different newspapers to so try to arrive at who stood for election, who failed to get elected and those who did get elected what votes did they get. I'm um, going to look at the identity of councillors and candidates in the 1901 and 1911 census and see, can we draw some sort of conclusions? Can we get, make a kind of a composite unionist in 1901 and a composite unionist in 1911? And has that changed? Um, and significantly it's from within the city is one zone and then the suburbs are another. So in each case I'll talk about in the city this happens and then in the suburbs something else happens, kind of a two-step approach to whatever I'm talking about. Um, I also use the minute books of the uh, councils and minute books are very limited but they're very interesting too because they're they're what the people want you to hear. Minute books, as we all know from any committee or member of, (coughs) you only record the decisions, you avoid the fighting, but sometimes you can read between the lines or you can read a press report that contradicts what seems to happen in the minutes, so I tried to sort of draw that together uh, to to kind of get at the core of it. So, um... I don't know if the sunlight is making that visible. Um, In 1906, uh, there was this particular cartoon, Comes from the Leprechaun Cartoon Monthly. And 1906, uh, this is a cartoon of the election of the first Labour Lord Mayor of Dublin, J.P. Ninetti. Now, there's a whole thing going on around internal politics within Dublin City Hall at the time, and it's showing different characters who are um, uh, supporting or not supporting Ninetti, who's in the pram. But the person um, that I want you to focus on is this guy here. This is uh, Alderman um, Francis Vance. He's a unionist, uh, Councillor Francis Vance, unionist member for Drumcondra Ward. And in this paper, I want to look at who were these unionists? Were they really the little toffs with their polished collars and their top hats? Were they really shoved aside into the gutter like this? Um, I want to look at those kind of questions. How did they fare in local politics at the start of the 20th century? And can we see what a typical unionist was like? Or was there even such a thing as a typical unionist? So for a bit of backdrop first on how the the suburbs uh, came to be and what was happening in Dublin um, in the uh, pre-period that I'm talking about. In the 19th century, up to 1840, um, up to 1841, Dublin city was governed by what's described as a Protestant oligarchy, basically unrepresentative crew that ran the city. 1841, the Municipal Corporations Act of Ireland opened it out and uh, allowed a rising Catholic merchant class greater access to city hall. There's two big results from that. Um, Well, the first kind of headline result was Daniel O'Connell gets elected as the first Catholic Lord Mayor since James II. But the the dominance of the Nationalist and Catholic Party in the City Hall is the main long-term result that comes out of this. There's an occasional attempt at kind of a gentleman's agreement in the 1850s and 60s, where they try and rotate the Lord Mayoralty between the Catholic and the Protestants as a kind of a gentleman's agreement, but that breaks down by the 1880s. And beyond that stage, it's very rare for a Unionist. And I'm going to mix Unionist and Protestant together, but we'll see how this works differently later on. um, But it's very rare for Unionists to hold the Lord Mayor's office or any senior office in the corporation beyond about 1880. The second big effect of that. uh, Corporations Act of 1841 is Dublin's peculiar form of suburban structure. Now, across cities of the industrialised world in the 19th century, lots of suburbs grow up and suburbs grow up for all kinds of reasons. Typically, it's to allow the genteel class to leave the overcrowded and smelly inner city and new transport routes allow them to live outside the city in more sort of salubrious and more um, uh, areas where they're sharing sort of socio-economic identity with people. Um, But in Dublin, this development was linked to the sectarian politics of the city and to the Catholic nationalist domination of City Hall. Um, Based on the provisions of the 1840 Act, it allowed you to set up a new township and the developers of Rathmines applied for permission to establish the Rathmines township in 1847. And they did this in a very tight geographical area. It was a very astute use of the Act. Um, So the Act was meant to allow... Loose and flabby suburbs to be coalesced into coherent units to be a self-governing area. The Rathmines promoters used a single parish um, and they sort of drew lines around the best areas. So they had quite a tight area which um, excluded poorer areas and any large social welfare institutions. So they didn't take over the rate-paying responsibility for any sort of down-market areas and they could keep the rates uh, quite low as a result. James and Matthew described Rathmines Township Commissioners, the forerunners of the council, um, as a self perpetuating clique. So they were kind of another sort of uh, an inheritor of that kind of small self appointing ol- oligarchy, if you like. They ran the township more like a corporation board, more like a, a sorry, a board of directors than like a council. Um, they had a firm rule that there was no political matters to be discussed at their meetings uh, and kept everything just business of the township was all they discussed but as critics remarked uh, at the time no politics in Rathmines means all Tory so basically if it didn't fit their identity they just didn't mention it and didn't get mentioned in in the minutes Crucial to this is that the people they attracted to live in Rathmines voted Unionist, and we'll see who those people might be later on. Um, Other suburbs cropped up around the same time. Uh, Pembroke, which stretched from Merrion Square out through Ballsbridge and Donnybrook, um, uh, arose in 1863. Clontarf arose in 1869. They were both Unionist-dominated townships. Um, Kingstown, present-day Dunleary, Had existed as a separate area in the 1820s, but became uh, sort uh, of—you could class it as a suburb, a suburban township of Dublin—because of the rail links and tram links and so forth. By the period I'm talking about, by the late 19th century. Um, So, this map shows Dublin city stretching around. I'll give you a close-up of this in a moment, but you can see stretching out down the coast from Clontarf through Drumcondra, around Kilmaine, and swooping around the city, and then you have Rathmines, Pembroke. Black Rock, Kingstown, Dawkey, and Kaliney, all of them being self governing townships stretching out the way. Um, we're going to focus more on. Sorry, do you want the, the blind closed? Yeah, we, it would be good. Ah, thank you. I'm going to show you some boring figures shortly, so i would be glad of the blinds being. Down. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Um, that's a lot better. Um, so. Closing in on the immediate area around the city, I'll be talking mostly about these suburbs. So again, you've got Clantarf out by the coast, Stromcondra due north, New Kilmainham here to the left, to the west, um, Rathmines due south, and then Pembroke stretching out to the south-east. And um, then just to sort of forewarn you, that things change a little because the top three um, townships are ultimately absorbed into the city in 1902. So we're looking at that, that phase of time. Now, there are many reasons for establishing a township, and not all were Unionist. Drumcondra, for example, was a white-collar nationalist speculative development of red-brick terraces. Nuclemanum had a strong labour strand to it, and Black Rock, which is just south of the shot here, <clears throat> had a mixed population of respectable nationalist shopkeepers and Unionist professionals. So they, were, they weren't all necessarily Unionist. I'm going to focus on the Unionist few for the purposes of this conference. Um, but the one common feature they had was they all had a higher level of Protestant res- representation in their populations than in the city itself. So this is taken from the 1901 census. Um, to explain, so you see each township's Catholic and non-Catholic. I'm taking non-Catholic, is, obviously, you're going to take largely Protestant, only a tiny minority of non-Christians in the city at this stage. Um, and so you'll notice that compared to Dublin City, So the old city is the city before it expanded to take in these suburbs Had an 18.3% Protestant population. But look at the Protestant populations of the other suburbs going up the the list. They're all considerably higher than that. And the three in yellow are the ones I'm mainly going to speak about uh, today. So... um, the self-governing townships looked and felt different to the old city. It wasn't just that the populations were different. Kevin o'sheill in his Bureau of Military Witness, History Witness Statement, um, Kevin O 'Sheill was a, an, an Ulster Catholic nationalist who comes down to study in Dublin in 1905-1910, and he writes later on about his time in Dublin, and he says, um, Rathmines was a unionist stronghold all during my student days and for many years afterwards. When the tram crossed Portobello Bridge, you found yourself in another world and sensed an indefinably different atmosphere from that of the city you had just left. Um, The first thing that brought it home to you was the sprinkling of Union Jacks flying from a number of shops and sometimes even from the tall tower of the conspicuous town hall. The town hall was the opening slide I had, that slide of that sort of handsome avenue up Rathmines Road. There were at all times a few on display a very substantial percentage of Catholics voted for the unionist and ratepayer candidates and he says, not so much because of their politics, but because they were good men of affairs and ensured sound economical urban administration. So this idea of of unionists being good administrators, good businessmen and good people to have in control was there. Um, It's interesting that he he, he doesn't allow the Catholics of Rathmines to have voted for these men because of their politics, so he, he imposes an identity on the Catholics as they'd never vote for Unionists, um, but he said they don't, on a local level they want good administrators. <laughs> he goes on then to, to joke about the typical Rath, a, attitude, the accent of the typical Rathminesian, um, and he says then he was terrifically, indeed embarrassingly loyal to king and empire on certain aspects of which its army and navy, for example, and its worldwide conquests, the Rathminesian was intensely interested and extremely well-informed. After that, his big interest was the delectable loyal borough of Rathmines. As for Ireland, for the greater part of it at all events, his interest was nil. So he's clearly, from a nationalist point of view, portraying the Rathminesian as being a very different creature. Now... The suburbs are growing up from the 1840s on through to the 1890s. Um, The the city centre hasn't become entirely nationalist. There are still unionists being elected in the inner city wards, typically the south city wards, so Fitzwilliam Square, Stevens Green, that kind of area, is still producing, uh, in the old city, still producing unionist councillors. A big debate at the time was annexation. The city was being hemmed in, and uh, for every election they were talking about within the city, we need to have parliamentary permission to gobble up these suburbs that have uh, surrounded us. We need their rates, we need their, the quality of their roads and so forth inside the city. And the resistance of the suburban uh, residents to this annexation drive was consistent and successful. They resisted it in, in Parliament, they resisted it in the courts and managed, uh, except for the weaker suburbs on the north side, they managed, uh, Rathmines in Pembroke, held off this uh, 50-year campaign to try and take them over. They held off the city's advances a lot longer than other cities in Britain. Lots of cities had a city and a suburb, but the city always won the battle and gobbled up the suburb. In Dublin, the the suburbs had a magic ability to fend off the city, and that magic ability was their connection to Unionists in Parliament. Um, The Irish Times wrote about the um, suburbs. It described that the the ratepayers in the suburbs are chiefly from the professional and uh, shopkeepers of the higher class. The great majority is, of course, unionist in politics, the ratepayers in the suburbs. Um, The area within the corporation, the old city, is different. Here, all power, the Irish Times says, is in the hands of nationalists. We cannot think that there is any sound reason for asking the unionist townships to place themselves under the heel of a hostile majority. So they see the thing in national debate, in national terms, Um, So, we've seen the townships had distinct identities, uh, distinct political identities. They also, in the built environment, had distinct identities. On the left is Kingstown, now Dunleary Town Hall. On the right is Pembroke Town Hall. It's now the head of the VEC, just across the bridge in Bald's Bridge. Um, Interestingly, the architect is E.H. Carson the father of Edward Carson, so the idea of a small separate enclave seems to run in this family, maybe, Um, um, and Carson had been a commissioner. We don't quite know who he got the contract for the architect, considering he was a commissioner in the council that that contracted for the work of architecture. Um, uh, A marker here for the foundation of Rathmines, you'll see these dotted around some of the southern suburbs, this Rathmines sort of corner marker to say where their territory ends, And then in Merrion Square Park, there are lampposts from different townships. Here's one from uh, Rathmines Urban District Council from 1900. So they had their own street furniture and identity was a big thing for them. So 1898 was a huge um, revolution in Irish uh, local politics. The uh, Westminster government was trying to shelve out or trying to, uh, what's the word, Uh, um, delegate out a lot of urban affairs It created much greater local urban freedoms in England, Wales and Scotland. In 1898, the Local Government Ireland Act introduced urban district councils, rural district councils and county councils and had far more powers. Um, It also transformed who could vote. The property qualification for voting in 1898 was lowered dramatically and this created a huge new swathe of voters. uh, Largely working class voters, but all sorts of different voters were introduced Um, some wards in the city had a 400% increase in voters overnight. On average, the city increased its voters by 371%, the suburbs by 148%. So overnight, you got this huge explosion of connection, and this came true in some of the earlier papers, of people being reconnected or connected to politics and political activism. Interestingly... Uh, a lot more women qualified so 20% of the new voters were female there had been some women who had voted before but this is a big new uh, explosion in female voting um, which certainly is meriting other, other research I would think so you'd assume this new democratisation would sweep away the old unionist oligarchy that sort of thing well not at all as will be shown the unions didn't disappear and the suburbs new powers allowed them to create even greater, stronger sense of their own political identity. They were renamed to the urban district councils, and they, as they got new powers to borrow money, make regulations, your local council really mattered. Your local council at this stage governed the quality of the milk you fed your children, uh, it developed the parks that your children played in, the school attendance officer was a council employee, um, you got your electricity and your gas. You could get them from the suburb as well. Here is Pembroke's, junction box of Pembroke Urban District Council's electricity supply. So they had their own generator and the Earl's Coronet, not something you see on Dublin streets very often, but this idea of a local identity. Um, uh, so basically they say that everything you encountered outside your front door was handled by your local council. It was that intimate level of, of contact. Um, So uh, that's 1898. They introduced this new law, 1899, the first elections. So how did they fare? How how did they get on in the new elections? At this stage, we're at the end of the Parnell split. So the nationalists are more intent on fighting each other than fighting anyone else. And their rallies are very, very heated, but they're heated about attacking fellow nationalists. Um, Labour have uh, 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 also public rallies. Um, the unionists in the city and in the suburbs don't use rallies. They only campaign and do electoral promotional work by letters to the press, by articles covered by friendly newspapers like the Irish Times and the Daily Express, um, private meetings in houses um, and handbills and posters, that sort of stuff. Um, not wall posters, handbills and it's you put through your letterbox and so forth. There's no public street rallying so it's an interesting engagement. There's a lot more voters but they're not actually rallying on the streets. Um, so I'll show you some uh, results later on as to how many seats they won, but the unionists got a good flavour of how these new councils will behave, certainly the unionists in the city. When the election was over and in the city hall, you still had, obviously, a nationalist majority was there, but you had a hardcore unionist clique that was always going to get elected in the city, and they quickly learned how the city council was going to behave under the new regime. The new regime said, when a new council is formed for the first time, first act of business must be to elect a Lord Mayor and then go on to the officerships. The nationalists are determined that the first thing is going to be to have a vote in favour of Home Rule before they do anything else, the old promise of Home Rule. Um, And they say to the unionists, please don't delay this, because you know it's going to happen. So they tell the unionist minority, please don't try and block this. Um, They have a show of hands, they vote. The Lord Mayor says, it's passed unanimously. And the unionists say, well, no, we didn't vote for it, we voted against it, it's not passed unanimously. And the Lord Mayor tells them, it's been passed unanimously. So you have this symbolic moment of the Lord Mayor saying to the unionists, your voice doesn't exist. We are unanimous and your voice doesn't count. And that, that idea of this sort of being blocked out of the debate, I think, is, is sort of struck me as very, very symbolic. Um, and then later on, when they went on to debate the an amnesty for Political Prisoners, the Unionists actually left, but then other people left as the meeting wore on. But in the suburbs, you see something else entirely. You get a glimpse of victorious Southern Unionism. Rathmines, Pembroke, Clontarf and Kingston all remained under Unionist control. Despite the rhetoric of non-politics in some of these um, townships, um, they were very relieved in the first meeting. So you had Lord Ardellon in Clontarf who shouts dramatically, Clontarf forever shall be free. Um, And in Rathmines, uh, the head of the Rathmines chairman shouts, no annexation exclamation mark in the newspaper report. So they're very delighted to be free. Um, However, Rathmines uh, and Pembroke would survive. Clontarf is appealing for help but has finally gobbled up within a couple of years and absorbed into the city. So to get a look at how uh, unionists fared electorally over the period I'm talking about, I'm going to give you a summary slide to show just kind of um, before, during and after. This is a slide showing um, unionist representation in the pre-1898 local councils, 1899 the first of the new councils and 1911 which is linking in with the censal year. In the city there um, there are 18% of seats, 18% of uh, of seats are taken by unionists in 1899, when you have more democratization and a, a greater participation of voters, it drops to 11.7%. But that says fairly consistent over 10 years. So the 10% of the city, are still, they're still getting 10% of the seats in the city, which is interesting when you consider that the nationalists have been reunited, John Redmond's in the ascendant, this sort of stuff is going on. In the suburbs, they had 69% before the reforms, but they stick at a very constant 45%. And while that's not a majority, they are by far the biggest party across the suburbs. Nobody else comes near them, so they control um, – it's quite easy for them to control quite a number of suburban uh, councils. If we break this down into very tight detail – I'm trying to simplify this so some of these figures might be tiny from the back, so apologies for this. Um, this is taking every year uh, from 1989 to 1914 the electoral results across the city. And I've highlighted the Unionist column and second column here – just to point out some of the interesting features of it. A, I think there's always unionists there. Ignore 1914 at the moment. That's kind of an outlier, which I'll try and explain later. If you see they have a jump in voters in 1902 to 1904, that's when they absorb Drumcondra and they absorb Plantarf, so they inherit those unionists from that, uh, from those, that zone. Um, but that kind of peters out. But the fairly constant level of 8, 9, or 10 people representing the unionists in the old city right through to 1912 or 1913 so there's a constant unionist voice, a constant unionist demand, uh, um, electorate there choosing to vote um, for uh, uh, unionist candidates. Um, there's, uh, I mean, I detailed uh, um, thoughts as to how, you, you know, the slight variations from 8 to 9 to 10. But we're looking into detail. It's that, that that hump in 1902 to 04 and then the constant, a fairly constant level thereafter. There's lots you could say about the other parties. I'll just mention the unknowns. The unknowns, people in, at this stage didn't always say, vote for me, I'm a unionist, vote for me, I'm a nationalist. They just said, vote for me, I'm John Smith. And you might have to determine from what newspapers said around them what party of politics they had, if they had any at all. And no one said, vote for me, I'm deliberately non-party. So you're reading contextually to get their identity. The rise and fall of the unknowns is kind of related, I think, to the political meaning where people start to vote for... Politicians who aren't bearing a flag, if you like, says something about the movement in politics in the city at the time. But just to say that unknowns, is, it's, some of it's just a mystery and some of it I think has, has meaning, but that's for too much detail for another day maybe. In the suburbs, this same pattern. This is the suburban table from 1899 to 1914. Unionists in the second column again. Um, and as you see, they've... Uh, Quite high numbers at the start. They lose numbers in 1902 because they've lost Strumcondra and they've lost Clontarf, which have unionist uh, c- c- councillors in them. Um, but they stayed the most successful party right the way through. And uh, the, when you come through to 1914, you get this drop down to four, from 51 in 1913 to 40 members in 1914. And um, this caused me a lot of uh, a lot of thought as to what, how to explain this. The only way I can possibly explain it, and you don't get it from the press. The press doesn't say this is because X um, I think as the uh, political situation with Home Rule and the Ulster uh, crisis and so forth is ramping up, and with the lockout of 1913, the sense of social dislocation, perhaps, is driving people away from flag-bearing politicians to independence. And you get 37 unknowns. These unknowns may be unionists or nationalists, but they're not selling themselves under that banner. They're just saying, vote for me. They're they're not claiming sort of a a, a large national political identity. That's the only sort of way I can interpret that, that sudden drop. You see the same drop inside the city. There is a ratepayers party, particularly significant in Pembroke from 1902 to 04, and again it occurs in later places. Um, And this ratepayers party, I think there's an argument for saying it's unionism, urban unionism under a different heading, and I'll come back to that later as to this idea of the way unionists can change their spots to match the occasion. I think there's something we have to watch for there. There's an interesting um, uh, uh, interesting what-might-have-been moment uh, going on in this first ten years. So, um, after 1902, um, Unionists uh, on the Municipal Council um, predominantly came from the absorbed uh, suburbs of Clontarf and Drumcondra. Um, and the Unionists, the population in the city, actually the Protestant population city, moves out to these former Unionist independent suburbs. So you get the city the general demographics of Dublin city centre becomes more Catholic and the suburbs become more Protestant from 1901 to 1911. Um, and through the same period, there's things like the call for um, reform, is, uh, reforming urban administration, urban politics. It's coming mainly from the unionists, um, and you begin to see a, a, a class distinction where the middle-class unionists in Pembroke and middle-class Catholics in Pembroke begin to... Coalesce together to form ratepayers' parties, that sort of thing. Which I'll, I'll discuss that in a moment. Um, Rathmines Council, throughout this, remains solidly unionist. If I so you a separate chart, it's just unionist straight the way down. Um, and this is a tribute to local party machinery, local party management. There were four Catholic councillors on Rathmines, but they were solid unionists all the way through. So uh, religion was less important than politics to the voters of Rathmines. And this reminds us that not all unionists are necessarily Protestant, and we see this again happening in in Pembroke and in Kingstown to a lesser degree. So religious and, uh, sorry, the socioeconomic factor might be a greater identifier as to who you're going to vote for and who's like-minded with you on the election, on the ballot paper. Um, In Kingstown, through this period, there was usually a slight unionist majority and you think, well, that would keep the nationalists out if everything was very polarised. Well, actually, it's not very polarised. There's a lot of bipartisan cooperation, and that council manages to pass, get through quite a number of sort of controversial things by just cooperating, and they, the operation of the council goes on quite well at the, at the committee level, like the Drains Committee and Markets Committee. They operate together very successfully. So um, what did a, a typical unionist look like? Going to their census information, what did the, what did the unionist look like? So it turns out he looks quite like John Redmond, which is kind of surprising. <coughs> this is Andrew Beattie. Um, uh, so he just, I just stumbled on his photograph the other day. I'd never thought to look for a photograph of him before. He, um, he is a, an important, he's not necessarily representative, but just I have him up as an image of a unionist, a bowler-hatted cigar-smoking merchant man. Um, uh, at the start of the century, uh, sorry, looking at unionists across the 1901 census in the city and in the suburbs, if you make a composite Unionists tend to be older than the nationalist opponents. In the city, a unionist councillor was probably an Anglican in his early 50s, probably a Dubliner. Nationalists were less likely to be Dubliners, unionists were more likely to be Dubliners. Um, Your unionist is going to be married with kids and probably working in commerce or the professions. In the suburbs, very similar profile, but he's slightly older, he's late 50s. So that's a kind of broad profile, if you like. As I said, Beware of taking religion as a complete identifier of unionism. There were Protestant nationalists in the city, and there were Catholic unionists in the suburbs. Uh, just to confuse the issue, a minority, but they were there. Taking an average, um, again looking at uh, suburban unionists, they, they mainly worked in the professions. A lot of them involved in law. Um, there were wine merchants, hoteliers, and grocers which is interesting because on the national side you get sort of merchant grocers, spirit merchants, pub owners so you get the kind of the the higher cash value versions of those trades amongst the unionist candidates as well a wine merchant and a hotelier is that different from a vintner and a pub owner but it is, but it's a matter of social class I suppose Um, the largest occupational category amongst suburban unionists was not producing and unspecified, that basically means landlords, pensioners, investments the rentier class Um, and this would explain their, their great interest in keeping the rates down if you're a property owner, if that's what you're living off keeping the rates down is very important there were three Ulster men in the Unionist group and five from Britain so this idea of other people from the United Kingdom sort of uh, uh, helping to bolster Dublin Unionism they're coming from Ulster and they're coming from Britain the census records perhaps unsurprisingly shows that none of them spoke Irish in fact I didn't find any uh, non-Catholic speaking Irish except for the town clerk of Dublin Corporation and he had to learn to speak Irish because he was an Anglican because the corporation were pushing Irish as an agenda at the time so winding forward to 1911 The typical unionist city councillor was 66 years old. He was 21 years older than the typical nationalist. So the unionists in the city haven't got an intake of new members. It seems to be the same guys growing older by 10 years. Um, Remarkably, the typical city unionist was twice the age of Sinn Féin, the average Sinn Féiners. This is a new party coming in. So this age difference, I think, is an important thing in maybe political activism. Um, Still, your typical Dublin Unionist is going to be Dublin-born, an Anglican, um, uh, more likely now to be professional or a manufacturer. Um, In the suburbs, funnily enough, the suburban Protestant population is growing. Uh, The average age of a Unionist councillor has dropped a little. He's now 58. Um, He was uh, an Anglican, born in Dublin, and very likely a lawyer or a retired military officer. So you get this interesting group of of military officers who served their time but would still be quite young men going into politics. Still, nobody spoke Irish amongst the unionist cohort in 1911. Um, What's interesting in the suburban unionists in 1911 is what they're working at, that that the the, the big change in those people are working housing and decor, as the uh, census puts it. It's a tiny minority, 5% in the earlier census. A quarter of all councillors are in this field by 1911. What does this mean? It's construction industry and auctioneers are included in this. So I think it's people involved in the growing suburbs. The suburbs are physically growing. There's more houses, house sales, house decoration, that sort of construction stuff. And I think that's what's – it isn't the builder construction. It's constructing at the more planning and managerial level is going into that. So I think you're reflecting the growth of the suburbs, and that might account for why unions are moving there. It's because you can run better business in the suburbs. Um the, uh, there's a, just a table here, um, the comparison between the representation of, this going back to 1901, the, the, the religious population of the city and suburbs compared to the religious population on the councils or the religious demographic on the councils. Um, so you see in the suburbs, the population has, is 37% Protestant in the suburbs but 55% of the councillors are Protestant, so there is an overrepresentation. And I think this speaks to this idea of being better men of business. They are attracting more voters. They are seen as being a more successful, uh, more successful operators uh, of, uh, of local councils. Um, there is a, change, a bit of a change by 1911 where the Catholic numbers rise and if you had a matching table for 1911, the Catholic numbers rise and you begin to get um, a reduction in Protestant numbers on the councils um, where I think there's an argument to say that uh, you're getting a disengaged Protestant community. It came up with one of the papers yesterday where they're beginning to step back, I think. The numbers are beginning to step back. Um, how do they perform their unionism on councils? They're just dealing with drains and sweeping crossings after all. Um, basically, things like... Um, Uh, 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 it is royal visits any time there's a royal visit for instance um, you get uh, in Dublin. corporation gets into a total upheaval will they present an an address of welcome or not in the unionist suburbs they lay out all the bunting all the flags, they build an archway over for the king to pass under and so forth um, in in the suburb as he comes into the city so they physically perform uh, their their, um, unionism that way. Within the city I mentioned uh, reform, that they're very reformist the unions in, the, in, in all areas. There is something here about this idea of opposition from without. This was mentioned about the Senate, in the Senate paper yesterday. Um, I think they're opposing the city by their mere existence, uh, they're opposing the nationalist city, but they're also always about reform of finances, reform of administration, the reform of the conduct of meetings. They can't reform in the city because there's 10 of them up against 50 nationalists. But when Labour come in, when Sinn Féin come in, they actually form alliances with Labour and Sinn Féin to block the worst excesses of nationalists such as dominance and that's quite interesting, those alliances can only ever be issue by issue because they're fundamentally different parties, but they will gleefully block an increase in the Lord Mayor's salary, for instance, and second each other's other's motions. Um, There is, I think, merit in uh, the idea of the local town councils as being like petri dishes, like little scientific experiments of what Home Rule might have been like, Little test cases, so I just wanted to use a science slide because they always look more exciting than history slides. Um, The the way they behave, I think, um, like the city had a nationalist majority with an excluded unionist and radical opposition. That's one example of how Home Rule Parliament might have been. Kingstown had reasonably evenly balanced numbers and they worked with each other hand in hand to get stuff done. When they came across a clash or something in Kingstown, like a royal visit, which was very identity-based, you might get make it the nationalists to say, we absolutely, the nationalists were briefly in the ascendancy during a royal visit. They said, we refuse to have an address of welcome, we refuse to get involved in this. However, we'll vote the use of the town hall and the funds and all the workers to the unionists to put up their bunching and their flower bouquets and so forth. So they, don't, they block it verbally, but not, not actually. Pembroke, Protestant and Catholic councillors joined together to form a middle-class identity party and that remained a bit perhaps like the old College Green Parliament as being sort of a Protestant oligarchy, if you like. So the different samples of what, what might have been. Um, just moving into the last couple of minutes here. Um, uh, religion was always a very delicate topic. You could attack somebody over their politics but not over their religion. Um, this came to the fore in 1910 uh, when uh, the coronation of George V When the anti-Catholic wording of the Coronation Oath became a problem for um, a lot of Catholics uh, began to the the Coronation Oath the King had to swear that he would sort of protect Protestant settlement against the idolatry of Catholicism and this word idolatry became a hot topic Um, there was a motion of censure passed in Dublin City Council the Unionists for the first time and only time that I can ever see, they actually abstained from the meeting and sent a telegram saying, we'll only get involved in a rancorous debate, so there's no point in going, and this is something very central, and it's religion, we don't get involved. But one unionist actually sent a telegram in saying, I'm abstaining, but I wish they would change the wording of the the controversial oath. So it's interesting that you're getting different views within unionism there. Black Rock, unionists in Black Rock passed a motion saying, we hope that that part of the king's coronation oath, which is so offensive and hurtful to his Catholic subjects, might be changed. So quite a sensitive wording there. Um, women's rights, just I don't want to into John's time, but um, uh, they were um, not identifiably um, more liberal on employing women um, than other councils, than other nationalist councils. However, Pembroke and Dublin City Council were the only two to actively support the uh, votes for women in Parliament. They, they actually passed motions in favour of that. Um, when the politics ramped up into the 1912 to 1916 period, um, there is a notable difference. Um, Bachelors' walk shooting in 1914. They're they're all equally horrified, but Rathmines stays silent on anything political, never wants to discuss anything anything political, but Black Rock and Kingstown pass motions of regret at this terrible shooting. When it comes to 1916, Rathmines, despite the fact that the bridge at Portobello was blocked by an army barricade, despite the fact that there's shootings happening in the barracks in Rathmines and the city is in total turmoil, they don't even mention it in the minutes until November 1916 whereas Dublin Corporation, Pembroke, all the others are talking about it, just coping with the emergency created by the rising, but Rathmines sails on regardless, um, until it absolutely has to mention it. Um, Coming towards an end, I think the idea of alternative activism, I think... um, the adaptability of unionists, they, uh, they form ratepayers' associations, they form um, the reform group, reform party, they try flying under different flags to attract votes, so they're quite adept at, at sort of um, tacking with the wind uh, in a very useful way, I think, so it's not just monolithic unionism. Um, the most long-lived of these groups is the ratepayers, uh, sorry, the Dublin Citizens' Association, which is led by Andrew Beatty, the man with the bowler hat, it's set up in 1909 it goes on in the papers until 1937 it exists way into the New free state and it acts as a kind of a, a suburban opposition to the city it's constantly critiquing the city's uh, bad administration high tax rates and so forth um, and the uh, unionists are also heavily involved in the proportional representation movement this idea of perhaps home rule is coming we can't avoid it so we need to adapt the system to match our needs as much as possible even Rathmines got involved in the proportional representation system So to sum up, I think the consistent performance electorally of the unionists is worth noteworthy. I think the idea that um, they were adaptable when necessary, but not until necessary. Rathmines didn't need to adapt until 1920, so it didn't. Kingstown did need to adapt, so it did. Um, The idea of how they might have evolved differently with reform movements, ratepayers associations, that adaptability of unionists is something I think is worth a note. Um, And the idea of of, um, opposition from without, that they were critiquing nationalist dominance from outside the city, but it struck me at the end that the, the dominant unionists in Rathmines, their behaviour on the minutes is very like the dominant nationalists in City Hall. So maybe it's about managing dominant majorities, not necessarily about green versus blue particularly. Thank you very much.